I love stories, um, whether they're imagination or you know imaginary or whether they're real. My favorite things are real life stories, you know. Um, but I really like them when they have simple plots. I'm not much of a complex plot kind of guy. Some people really get into that, you know. Um, I never saw the TV series Lost from years ago. Some of you may kind of remember that. But what I do remember about it is that many of my coworkers were hooked on it. My boss was hooked on it. And every week, the day after, he'd call me and he'd want to talk about it. And I remember watching how people were just, like, addicted to it. And it was back in the day before you had DVRs and all that. You had, you know, recorders, like tape recorders that was still cumbersome. And so a lot of people would just, that was their night, you know. And so I remember that. And um, I'd hear about it the next day at work. People would be talking about it. But by the time I started thinking about maybe watching it, it was already into like the second or third season. And I thought, I'm going to be lost. See the pun too that I did there? Anyway. Um, it lasted for six seasons, but it was nominated for over 54 awards. It won something like 10 of those awards. It was... Um, I was basically labeled as or awarded um, the best network television show for five years in a row. So there must have been something to it, I thought, right? Um, But one of the things I often heard about it was that it was kind of complicated and hard to follow. Anybody here watch it? Did anybody remember it? Okay, so... But... Do you remember? Well, it was hard to follow. I was told it was kind of hard to follow, kind of complicated with the plot twists and stuff. You know, um... It had all this bizarre backstory stuff. It had these plot twists. It had what they call flashbacks. It had forward flashes. It even had something called sideways flashes, which almost had to be explained to people what they were. Well, I decided um, a few months back, since I saw it on Amazon Prime, that I would stream it, watch it while I do my stretching exercises at night and stuff like that. Now, I also remember one other thing about it, and it was something Dave Malin reminded me of just not too long ago when we went out to lunch, about the severely disappointing two-hour final. Because it really didn't resolve anything, and so you watch six years of this, and you get to the final, and you really finally think, okay, I'll get it. It's all going to be wrapped up. All the threads are put together. You know, I'll finally understand. And you walk away going, What? Dave Malin reminded me of that when I went out to lunch with him a few weeks back because I told him I was streaming and watching. He's like, if you're hoping it's all wrapped up in the end, forget it. It's not. I'm like, thanks, Dave. You know? I should have listened to him because I watched the whole thing and I found myself getting lost at times and trying to figure out things and I even started going to websites and researching, like looking at articles. And what's funny about it is I found articles that literally are less than a year old where people are still debating what the series meant and what happened and what was really going on. Just a year ago, people were still debating this. So I watched it. A few weeks ago, I had the final. My head still hurts. I'm still confused. I personally lost myself. See, I did that again. Um, would I watch it again? Uh, no, I don't like rewatching stuff. But it was entertaining. But man, way, way too complicated to follow. And and so yeah, I might just because it'll kill kill an hour while I stretch. I like things that are a lot simpler. Today's passage is a lot simpler. In fact. I'll be a little goofy. I'm in a goofy mood this morning. It's pretty much this. Okay? This is your outline for this morning. Okay? Dude attacks the church. Dude rescues, or Lord rescues Peter. 
Lord kills a dude. That's really what we have in this passage today. Is that Herod attacks the church, the Lord intervenes and rescues Peter, and then the Lord kills Herod. That's the outline for this morning. I like that. It's simple for us. It's easy to understand. Much of the scriptures is like that. That's one of the things I loved about the way that Sight and Sound handled the story of Ruth. You walked away from that going, yes, it is all about Jesus Christ. That's why Ruth is in the book. It foreshadows what the Lord was going to do in Christ. It's simple. So let's go ahead and look at this. We're in Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read the first four verses. I'm going to tackle this, you know, with reading a chunk and then just talking about it instead of going kind of verse by verse per se, but we'll, we'll cover what's in the text here. The first four verses. Now, at that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So who was Herod? Herod was a guy named Herod Agrippa I. He was king of Judea for about four years, three and a half or so, A.D. 41 to A.D. 44. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was king of Judea when Jesus was born. He was the wicked leader, wicked king who wanted all the infants killed two years and younger when Jesus was born. So this is his great-great-grandson. He was Jewish. And he was really well-liked among the Jews. He was known for his public displays of piety and his commitment to the Old Testament law. He used to bring his own sacrifices to the temple. He used to read the law in the synagogues. So he was active and involved among the people and seemed to be a very religious, pious man. The problem is that when he was outside Jerusalem, when he would travel, when he would go to Rome, he lived like a pagan. So in many respects, it was all for show while he was in Jerusalem. Again, he was very well liked. His skills at mediation between the Romans and the Jews were superior to almost any other king at the time. He was great at advancing Jewish policies. One example was when the Roman Emperor Caligula decided that he was a god, fairly common with Roman rulers, decided he was a god, and he ordered that statues of himself be put in every religious temple in the Roman Empire, including the synagogues, Jewish synagogues, and the temple at Jerusalem. Well, Herod was able to convince him not to do that when it came to the Jews. He was a master at politics, kind of keeping the peace between the Romans and the Jews because that wasn't always the case. And so for that reason, because he was masterful and cunning, he rose to power very swiftly, and he was extremely well-liked among the Jews. When we meet him here, we learn that he kind of picked up where Saul had left off. You remember Saul and persecuting the church? Well, Herod picked up where Saul left off. Here we're told in the text that he arrested some Christians. We're not told how many exactly. He only mentions John or um, Peter and John. I'm sorry, Peter and James. But it says that he specifically was out to, the text says, to mistreat them, to harm them, to persecute them. 
He arrested James, the brother of John, and it says here that he put him to death with the sword. That's all we know of that. Putting somebody to death by the sword was a Roman execution method, so he was likely, I wouldn't say tried, but brought in and executed as an official Roman act. It's used to probably make an example of him. We're also told here in the text that the Jews were pleased by it. They liked it. And so because of that, he decides, oh, okay, remember, he's a masterful politician. He's trying to keep the Jews happy, trying to keep Rome happy. And when he arrests James and kills him, he realizes the Jews really like that. And so he gets an idea, you know what, I should keep this up. So he then goes and he arrests Peter. His plan, we're told, was to kill Peter just like he had James. But he wanted to wait until Passover was done so he simply confined Peter to prison, we're told. This was a purely political move on Herod's part. During the week between the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover, Jerusalem was overwhelmed with visitors. Jews come from all over the world at that time. They flood into Jerusalem. There's festivals going on. It's a carnival atmosphere, if you will. Had Herod decided to execute Peter right there in the midst of that celebration, it likely would have been overlooked. Nobody would have been paying attention. It's not like the crucifixions. This is just a Roman execution where they stick him with a sword. Behead him. And so his concern was, if I do it now, I don't get the political capital out of this. So the text tells us that he preferred to make Peter's execution a grand spectacle by waiting to bring him out before the people after Passover. So he could get the most bang for his buck, so to speak. So that's Herod. What do we do with this? What are some of the takeaways maybe as we look at this? I think it's pretty obvious government-sponsored persecution of believers has been a part of the church's history since day one. This is not new. It's not something that finally disappeared in history. This has been something that the church has faced ever since its very beginning. It's happened before this in the book of Acts, and it continues to happen even to this day. Most of the persecution we see in the book of Acts, at least up until this point, has been by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the the Supreme Court, if you will, of Jerusalem, of Israel. We see it here with the king. This is the highest ranking government official, and he's actively persecuting the church. That was unfortunately just a foreshadowing of the kind of government-sponsored persecution that the church would see throughout history. I'm going to give you just a real quick rundown of, of history. The Roman Empire persecuted the Christian church for the first 300 years of its existence, pretty severely. Then after that, after the Romans finally all basically made it the official state religion, you think that persecution might be done, but then the Persians took over, followed by the Byzantine Empire, who systematically persecuted Christians all the way through the Middle Ages. After that, 1600s, Christianity was outlawed in parts of Asia, including Japan, where it was outlawed for the next 200 years to be a Christian in Japan and to worship. China was soon to follow in the 1700s when they banned Christianity for almost 100 years. You could not be a Christian in China. The church has faced the same thing throughout modern history, if you think about it. We think about many of the European countries from the Soviet Union, China, North Korea. In fact, 
most Muslim countries right now. We see governments, Muslim governments, persecuting Christians. We've been fortunate here in the United States, but things are changing, I think. And we're in the midst of a battle right now. We've got local governments that have passed laws restricting the rights of Christian business owners to operate their businesses based on their faith. How many times is Jake or Jack the cake maker? Now, what is it, number four, I think we're on? Is that right? Three or four times? Or he just keeps fighting the same battle? It's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court where he was exonerated to some degree there. But apparently, some don't want to accept that and he's being attacked again. We've seen photographers. We've seen other cake makers. We've seen all kinds of local governments now that are trying to press the LGBT issue and they are specifically calling out churches and Christian organizations in relationship to those things. There are all kinds of agencies that allow you to adopt children. Why is it that certain ones have been targeted very specifically because of their opposition to non-traditional marriage and immorality? You can go somewhere else and adopt. You don't have to use Bethany like the Malins did. Why is it they get singled out? You've got universities, Christian universities, that have been told they will lose their accreditation for the same issue. So there's a challenge going on right now. The current federal administration is already trying to push issues like this, threatening funding for Christian schools. We've got them threatening businesses who receive federal funds as well. No more help for you! You don't hear them saying that about Muslim organizations, do you? You really don't. Or other Christian organizations? It's Christians are saying, and some would argue, well, it's because we're the most widely, and maybe so. But the offense is against Christ's church. That's the most offensive. We see the federal government now trying to remove long-standing religious exemptions. They're even threatening sanctions against us. When we say things like, well, gee, some of these things you're considering, considering, some of the new acts that have been proposed... We'll threaten churches deliberately. Oh, no, 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 they won't. But yet, in the back talk you hear, that's ultimately the intent. You know, I've told people I'm solemnized, which means I can perform marriage ceremonies as an agent of the state. Being solemnized, it makes me an agent of the state. And as an agent of the state, I'm expected to follow the laws which means I cannot discriminate against who I choose to marry and who I choose not to marry because a federal judge, or I mean a, a state judge cannot. If you are a gay man and you take your gay fiancé to a state judge, the law says he has to marry you. Now, I don't know of any pastors in the state of Ohio who have been forced to do that, but what happens if somebody decides to press the issue? So I've had to think long and hard, do I even perform marriage ceremonies anymore? I haven't come to a decision on that because I haven't been asked to. But there's a part of me that says, maybe what I should do is to simply say, I will not perform the legal aspects of it. We'll have a ceremony, we'll do everything in the eyes of God, but if you want that certificate, go down to the courthouse and get it. Because I don't want to find myself in a position where the state comes back and tells me, well, you married a couple of other straight people, and there's this gay couple that just happened 
happens to show up at your door and wants you to marry them, and you have to. I don't know if it'll get to that or not, but you know what? It wouldn't shock or surprise me. Why? Because we have a government, local, state, federal now, that is continuing, in many respects, in the tradition of so many governments in the world throughout history in the church. It is nothing new. It used to be here in the States that I think government was a friend of the church. Many of our founding fathers made that very, very clear. That the state should not interfere, but didn't mean they had to stay out. Didn't mean that they couldn't talk openly and encourage faith in Christ. There's something else we kind of see in this passage here, and it's the political motivation that oftentimes follows or underlies government-sponsored persecution. Really what drives a lot of this is politics. It's crazy if you think about it. Herod was pious, which means that the religious convictions that he practiced publicly were really just more a means to gain favor among the people. Pretend to be a good Jew. Remember, when he was outside, and history documents this, when he was outside, he lived like a pagan. Indulged in the Jewish fantasies, and, or I mean the uh, Roman fantasies and all that it offered. It was only when he was back home that he pretended to be a good Jew because it was politically expedient for him to do so. It was unlikely he went after believers for religious reasons. He did it, we're told, in the text here. Why? Because it pleased the Jews. Now some, I think Paul, persecuted because he thought he was protecting Yahweh and the traditions of the law. It doesn't appear that's the case with Herod, remember. He really only cared about the law because of what it gained him in political points. So his motivation here was purely political. Whether it was gaining him popularity or trying to appease the Jews to keep the peace. Do you think maybe we see some of that today even within our own government? I mean, I think about some of the, and I won't name names here, but some of the recent Catholic politicians that the Catholic Church has come out and condemned. Why? Because they're not acting like Catholics. But they say they're Catholic. Why? It's a label they wear. Even through the last political season, how many of those who have probably never set foot in a church or rarely do it on a Sunday morning kept talking about my faith? I'm a, I hate this phrase. I'm a person of faith. You know what? If you're a believer, you say you're a believer. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you say I'm a Christian or I love the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't say, I'm a person of faith. That's just, you know the phrase, that's just a dog whistle. To gain you political points among evangelicals and those people of faith out there. And so much of it to this day is still done to gain political points and favor. It really is. Half the time... People who are not religious oftentimes don't care about religious things. Many unsaved people don't really care what Christians do. But I think we're seeing what's happening now is it's all being worked up and now they're starting to because they're being told we're bigots and hateful and all this kind of stuff. But it's not really the religious convictions because half of them don't know what we really believe anyway. They just believe what they're being told about Christians. That's the way it's been throughout history. Christians throughout history have been some of the best citizens. They're most often the one that will support government, even when they don't agree with the government.
because that's built into our DNA. We're told to honor those even corrupt leaders. Those are the people you would want, right? But that's not. Look at what happens in China right now. You know? The more they get persecuted, <laughs> the more they seem to grow. You know? China's going to find out down the line here that what they're doing isn't really going to work. So, much of what we see happening is political in nature. And we see that with Herod here. It's not always the case, clearly. But quite oftentimes it is. So what happens next? As I mentioned, the outline today was some dude attacks a church. That's what we see happening here. So what happens next? Well, the Lord is going to step in and he's going to rescue Peter. He's not going to allow Herod to carry out his plan. I can't answer why he allowed James to be killed, but not Peter. People have asked. People debate it. Commentaries are written on it. Don't know. Can't answer that for you. But the Lord does intervene here, and he rescues Peter. Look at verses 5 through 19. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. On the very next night when Herod was about to bring him forward Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison and behold an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying get up quickly and his chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him gird yourself and put on your sandals and he did so and he said to him wrap your cloak around you and follow me and he went out and continued to follow and he did not know what was being done by the angel, or uh, was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first line and the second line of guards, and when they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened for them by itself, they went out and they went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked on the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhonda came and answered. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, They kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them in depth how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. That's James, the brother of Jesus. Then he left, and he went to another place. Now when they came, and there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have come... I'm sorry, now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and he ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and was spending time there. So we have here something very similar. Dustin's already alluded to it. Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were arrested and an angel comes and supernaturally releases them from prison or rescues them from prison. There are a number of things I find kind of fascinating about these verses. First, the church responds exactly as it should. They begin to pray. It says that they pray fervently. You know, that's a theme 
That actually comes up quite frequently in Acts. I've read through the book of Acts quite a few times in my lifetime, but I never really caught that. But you know what? There are 29 references to prayer in the book of Acts. That's more than there are chapters. 29 times. Something else I notice about that is only one-third of these involve individual prayer. Two-thirds of the references to prayer in the book of Acts refer to what I'm going to call corporate prayer. More than one individual praying with another individual or the body, the local church, praying together. Two-thirds. And that's exactly what we see happening here. I think this is one of the areas maybe the American church struggles. You know, it's interesting. We don't have a weekly prayer time here. And a lot of it's partly because facility, we never had a facility to be able to do it. But also, we're all coming from different parts of the city. And some of us have a half-hour drive. It's a little more challenging. Plus, life just gets busy, right? It's why we take time on Sunday mornings specifically to pray as a body. This is not something a lot of churches do. Prayer will be between songs or this or that. And we've chosen, chosen to specifically make a portion of our service, a time where we share prayer requests and we pray together because I believe, I always have, that that is critical. Not just to our church, but to us as individuals. We should be doing that. Um, it's amazing when you look at the number of American churches today that their weekly prayer service is completely gone now. And those churches don't take time to pray together as a body of believers. Now, maybe it takes place in their home groups and other things. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I think this is one of those things where I don't think the American church prays like it used to. I really don't. I've had to be challenged myself in that. Do I pray enough? How much time do I spend in prayer? It's easy to sort of, you know, I do my studying usually days and evenings, okay? I wake up in the morning and I have my alarm go off and that's when I do my prayer time. But it's easy to sort of forego that because it's not part of a daily devotional. When I was all through college and, and even up through seminary, I had these daily devotions where I would get up and I would study and pray and it was sort of a system that I did. Well, then when I got to where, because of the type of study I do now, it's, it involves my PC with Bible works and the languages up on the screen and maybe some common, other things all out, you know. So now I've had, my, my time in the Word is separate from the prayer time, and so it becomes easy to oh, get up late, rush around, and I've had to kind of constantly remind myself, no, no, you need that time to pray and set that aside. And so I, that's my morning time. I have my alarm set to where it'll go off every five minutes because I don't want to get out of bed. I want to just lay there and pray. And so it keeps going off every five minutes to wake me up just in case I fall asleep. And I'll generally do that for anywhere from, I don't know, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes in the morning. But I think this is an area where the American church has really struggled. You know, the other day I called Dustin. I had something on my heart and just having trouble keeping my thoughts, you know, where they needed to be. And um, just I had a little bit of worry maybe or some other things. And so I called Dustin and we chatted for quite a while. And he ended it by praying I've got another friend of mine that I talk to fairly frequently and he's gone through some very challenging times and oftentimes we will pray at the end of that time. I'm somebody where I often don't reach out and ask others, can we pray right now? You know, I've always been a very private prayer person. I pray here every time we, I stand up in front of you 
that's kind of weird for me sometimes because for me, prayer is a very personal thing. And so I'm not prone to want to pray. Some people love praying out in public, you know. That's never been me. So it's a challenge for me to do that sometimes. So I appreciated when Dustin, I knew he would pray for me when we hung up the phone, but to have him say, hey, let's pray, you know. We need to do more of that. And we see the church doing that here. The first thing that they do when Peter's arrested is they begin to pray and they do it fervently. I think sometimes our first response is to whine and complain and to worry and to have fear. Instead of simply drop to our knees. Another thing I find fascinating is what we see in verse 6. When the angel arrives, he actually finds Peter sleeping. Now think about this for a second. Remember, James had just been put to death, so Peter probably at least suspected that was the case. He knew where that was going to likely end up. Where he was staying wasn't a comfortable place to stay. Roman prisons didn't have skylights, cable TV, three squares a day, you know. We're told here that he was shackled. He doesn't even have all of his clothes on. These places were cold, dark, damp. This guy's sleeping. And you notice this isn't just the head nods or a little bit of dozing off. He is sound asleep. So sound asleep that the blinding light that shows up from this angel isn't enough to wake. I, I cannot sleep. My bed, Amy will laugh at this, our bed is right by the door. And because it's an old house, the door doesn't fit real tight until the light comes around the door. My daughter's bathroom is right outside our door. And there's a nightlight that we have in that bathroom. I have to turn off that nightlight when I go to bed because just that little tiny bit of light comes in, and he's laughing, comes in around the door and that's where I sleep. And even with my eyes closed, that bothers me. Amy had me not to, we put this CO2 detector in our bedroom because we have a gas fireplace now. And we also have a vehicle that has a push button thing. And I was a little concerned we come in and don't push the button off and the van continues to run in the garage. Our bedroom's right above it. So I put a CO2 detector right in our bedroom as well. Well, it's got a little, I think, a green or red light on it. And I think Amy even complained initially. She's like, that's too much light! Too much light! You know? Um, And here, Peter is so sound asleep that the light from an angel bursting into the room isn't enough to wake him up. And not only that, we're told here that this angel had to poke him on the side. Now, the language that's used here is rather interesting. It's the word for smiting something. It means to punch somebody. Now, I'm not saying that the angel walked in and... But it's interesting that Luke would use a word that isn't just... Come on, Peter, get up. Peter, come on. When I was growing up, um, I've shared this before, I used to get up about 4.30 in the morning in high school because I had to deliver newspapers first before going to, to clean the pool and then have practice that started at 6 a.m. So my dad would oftentimes wake me up in the morning. And the way that he'd wake me up is he would tickle my ears. He would come in and he would just tickle, 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 you know, and then do it again until I would finally, you know, what, what, get up, you know. This was no tickling. The impression I think Luke is trying to give us is that Peter was sound asleep and the angel had to poke him or prod him pretty good to get him to wake up. So the question I have, and the reason I find this fascinating is, who in the world could sleep so soundly at a time like this? An uncomfortable situation, 
cold, damp, dark, shackled to somebody else, probably shivering because he doesn't have his cloak on, we're told. He didn't have his sandals on his feet. Knowing that he may very well be put to death in a couple of days. And yet he's sleeping. What does that tell us about Peter? What does it tell us about his faith, his trust? In fact, when he comes out of his coma, if you will, his vision, we're told, he's a little surprised. Huh, the Lord rescued me, and those poor Jews don't get what they expected. It tells us a little bit about his faith. I can't imagine that in many respects. I'll be real honest, I don't know that I'd be sleeping. I called Dustin the other day because I was a little concerned. Some thoughts in my head, you know. So I think one of the takeaways there is I wonder if we exhibit the same kind of peace and confidence that Peter did when we're faced with that kind of adversity or persecution. I've told you this time and time and time again how I learned a lot watching how we've gone through this whole pandemic the last year and a half. Meaning, we meaning just the church as a whole. And some of it's very disappointing. Some of it's encouraging, but some of it's just plain disappointing how many Christians and churches and others have responded. Um, There's been a lot of anxiety, fear, anger, hatred, lost perspective on what's really important sometimes, what the real witness is supposed to be. You know, God didn't put the American church here to defend the Constitution. I'm sorry. As much as I think we ought to defend the Constitution, I'm not saying we shouldn't. But that's not why he put the church here. And yet, many Christians have responded as if that's the only reason he left us here through this pandemic, is to secure and to demand that we have the rights that our Constitution grants us. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't defend those. What I'm saying is that when that looks like the only thing behind your behavior, I literally had some Christians tell me that the ends justify the means. And when I've said, wait a minute, you're representing Christ, but it's coming to the Constitution from Christians. And I thought, dude, you're missing the mark here. And so we get all worked up and anxious, and what we find here with Peter is that he just had this peace, trust, and confidence in the Lord. And I'll be real frank, Most of us haven't faced death through this pandemic. Peter did, and look at the faith and confidence he exuded. One final thing that um, I want to point out about this particular section of the passage here is the church's initial reaction to Peter being released from prison. Look back at verses 13 through 15. When he knocked on the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhonda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she didn't open the door of the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. You would think the church would be going, We were praying for this! God answered our prayer! But what do they do? It's like a Saturday Night Live skit. They say, Oh, you're nuts! Wait a minute. We're praying that God would rescue Peter... God rescues Peter. This girl sees Peter, and they don't believe her. You're nuts. So she continues. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting. They kept saying, it's his angel. It's not Peter. 
You're seeing things. Then you got Peter, he's still out there knocking on the door, you know. Dudes, what's going on? Open the gate, I'm here. You know, I got something exciting to share with you. And they're all just inside. We better just keep praying. Just keep praying for Peter. I mean, obviously I'm being a little bit goofy here, but it is like a Saturday Night Live skit. We pray for things, and I think sometimes it surprises us when God answers them. Not always. But that's kind of what we see here. I wonder if we're reluctant to believe that God will supernaturally answer our prayer sometimes. You know, it's funny because we do... It's a weird place to kind of be for us because sometimes God heals people, sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes He answers our prayers the way He wants them, or wants to answer them, and we are looking for a different answer, you know? And so it's not like this cut and dried thing, just name it and claim it, pray for it, and God will do it. But I think because of that, we find, kind of fall into this trap as evangelical Christians sometimes where we almost start from the premise, we'll pray for this, but if it's God's will, and if he doesn't, he might not do it. And it almost makes us somewhat reluctant to expect him to do it. And we don't have enough expectation when we pray. And I wonder if that's what we're seeing here with, the, with them. Oh, he prayed for James. He was put to death. I wonder what they were praying for for Peter at this point. I don't know. It doesn't really say. But regardless, when God answers their prayers, they're a little bit reluctant to believe it. It's almost too much for them. Maybe because of the supernatural part of it. Maybe because they had already seen James put to death. Don't know. But I think we have to be careful. I often know that's the case with me. I pray for God to do something and sometimes I'm already at that point sort of thinking, well, he probably won't. Just because reason tells me maybe he won't. I think God wants us to pray with expectations. He'll answer it sooner or later, one way or the other, and at that point we can say he did or he didn't. And we should pray with expectation. Expect him to do the, do the miraculous. I sometimes wonder if maybe in the evangelical church we don't quite see some of the miraculous things because James himself says to pray without doubting. Why should God answer if we doubt? It's a hard question to answer where that line is sometimes. But we should pray with expectation. I think about maybe the current circumstance and situation we're in. Many have decided that praying's maybe not enough. That, um, again, the ends justify the means to try to secure our freedoms and other things. And is part of that driven by maybe we just don't think God will do it if we pray? I don't know. Like I said, it's a tough question to answer. But regardless, we got to pray with expectation. Let's move on to the last part of this. Remember I told you, I said, you know, the way it ends is the Lord kills a dude. Well, the Lord does that. He kills Herod here. Look at verses 20 through 25. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, or give God the glory. 
And he was eaten by worms and died. Luke's just blunt to the point. Right? At first glance, I think we have to wonder, why would Luke include this section? What does it really have to do? Even in your Bibles, you see there's probably a paragraph mark there, right? It's like, okay, next event. This has nothing to do with what we just learned. But Luke included it for a reason. He doesn't directly tell us he doesn't directly or indirectly, indirectly associate this with Peter's escape. In fact, the event takes place at a different time. It's about five months later, according to what we find when we read Josephus. Josephus actually records this event. He was the Roman historian. It happened in a different city. It wasn't in the same place. It was actually in Caesarea, the Roman province capital, not in Jerusalem. It happens with a different group of people. Tyre and, or Tyre and Sidon. And in fact, it doesn't even involve the church. So why would Luke include this? What does this passage have to do with what just happened? Well, essentially, the people of Tyre and Sidon, um, Sidon here had fallen out of favor with Herod. Herod provided them with food. And for some reason, Herod was angry with them and so had cut off their food supply. So they basically petitioned one of his officials, kind of won that official over, finally get an audience with the king. They, they make their plea to him, and he finally now has some decision to make. And so he comes out in all the pomp and circumstance, probably a big political theater. He's now going to make this announcement, in all likelihood probably going to say, well, I've heard your pleas, and I'll go ahead and I'll give you food now. And he gains his political points and everything else. You know, that's probably what to be expected here. But when he comes out, Immediately they begin praising him, which is fairly common in the Roman world too. You could literally call the Roman emperor a god because many of them thought they were. And so that's exactly what they do is they begin to appeal to him. This is the voice of a god and not man, you know, and he probably is just soaking it up. We know what happens. Worms eat him. He's dead. What's interesting is Josephus, when he records this, says that he was killed because he didn't give glory to God. That's Josephus. He even recognized. Now we don't know, had he heard of this, was there a rumor, whatever it was, but there was enough, even outside the scripture, so to speak, to know that this was, in some respects, related to how Herod did not honor and glorify God. I think the reason that Luke actually included this is because he wants us to see a connection between it. He wants us to see this was an enemy of the church. And the Lord decided to take the obstacle out of the way. But I think Luke wanted us to understand that there was more to it as well. And that's because of what was in the heart of Herod and what drove him to do what he did. Remember, he was a Jewish official. He should have been there to honor the Lord. He made it seem like he loved the Lord. He made it seem like he obeyed the law. And he didn't. It was always about him. And so Luke wants us to see a connection between the events of what happened to Peter and James, the attack on the church, and what happened with Herod and the Lord taking his life. I'm going to call that a loose association, which oftentimes happens in the scripture. 
Or they provide this loose connection, knowing that you'll make that connection. In fact, Luke does something interesting in verse 24, which is particularly why, I think. Notice what he says. After he describes the death of Herod, he immediately says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Basically, what we find here is that immediately after describing the death, he basically says, But! It's a contrasting word. But the Lord continued to grow the church. So Luke himself ties Herod's death now to what had just happened. And that's his persecution of the church. He was an obstacle to the growth of the church and the Lord eliminated him. What's the takeaway for us in this? For me, it's simply this. Nothing can stand in the way of what God intends to do with the church. No amount of opposition. We've seen that throughout history. Religious leaders have been arrested, threatened, beaten. We see that in the book of Acts. And yet each time, what happens? Well, they're emboldened. The church grows. We see them murder Stephen. But what did that do? That led to the church expanding as it pushed out from Jerusalem. We see Saul try to wipe out the church, but Jesus turned him into his tool to be used. And what happens? The church explodes among the Gentile world because of Saul. We see Herod here, a government official, embark on a mission to destroy the church, and what happens? God eliminates him. God is not going to let anything get in the way of what he intends to do with the church. We see persecution all over the world increasing now. Organizations like Open Doors and others track persecution around the world. And all of them have said that persecution is increasing all over the world against Christians. And yet what's interesting is the church still continues to grow. Numerically, believers are added to Christ. China right now, they expect China to have more Christians in the United States. Asia, I mean, sorry, Africa already does. In fact, Christianity is growing in Africa at a rate that's almost unprecedented any time in history. It's exploding. In spite of more and more governments. There are now, I think, on Open Doors list, 146 governments that actively persecute Christians now. It's gone up by, I think, 10 in the last three or four years. And yet, the church continues to grow. Maybe not here in the United States, which might tell us something, but around the world where persecution is even more severe. And so, the takeaway for me on this is just this. I think Luke was trying to tell us that when opposition comes against the church, the Lord will take care of it. He'll continue to grow the church. Doesn't mean there won't be challenges or in some respects deaths like James. But the Lord will intervene and the Lord will continue to do exactly what the Lord intends to do. with it. He will finish building his church. And when it's all done, Jesus will come back. But nothing's going to stand in the way until then. There will be periods where the church will be knocked down Think about Iraq right now where the Christian population was almost just demolished in northern Iraq. 1.5 million Christians at one point in northern Iraq that are gone. we got Nigeria right now that just, I think they said in the last couple of months, 2,500 Christians have been killed. 
So we'll have setbacks. We'll have times of persecution. But you know what? That doesn't mean the Lord is not going to do what he promised he would do, which is to build his church. And that's what we see today. We see that in the book of Acts here. So that's my takeaway. It should encourage us. I look around, it's easy to get discouraged at what I see happening in the United States right now, and I think to myself, boy, where we were and where we are now. It's disappointing to see that. But it shouldn't be discouraging. This is one place out of the world. Maybe God will revive us. Maybe we will see a revival here in the United States. Maybe we won't. But it doesn't mean God is failing to build His church. You want to be encouraged? Look at what's happening in other places of the world. Look past the persecution and look at the growth of the church. Look at where God is saving people. He's doing exactly what he promised to do in spite of the opposition against him.